Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. This is last week in Texas with our expert, Michael Smith. So Michael, thanks for joining us once again. Well, good to be here, Wayne. Thank you for having me. Well, Michael, take us to the Eastern District of Texas. What, what happened last week? Well, one thing that happened last week is we got the judgment in uh, Judge Gilstrap's um, uh, Panoptis case against Apple. That's the one that was retried on damages, resulted in a $300 million verdict. And when Judge Gilstrap got to the 284 issue, which is enhancement of damages based on a willful uh, infringement finding, in one paragraph, he said, the standard isn't met, so I'm not going to enhance at all. And he says, enhancement is generally reserved for egregious cases of culpable behavior. And after hearing all the facts, that's just not this case. So I'm not going to do it. And this kind of matches up with what I tell a lot of people that are worried about willful findings. I tell them it really doesn't matter if you have a willful finding because the real money is in on whether the court is going to enhance and courts enhance less than I hear. So I think that's one of the significant things here is that you may get a willfulness finding, but that may not actually give you anything as far as enhanced damages. Well, Michael, this is this one's close to my heart. Um, several years back, I guess maybe one of the first cases I tried down in the Eastern District was with George Chandler. And, uh, you know, George is a, a colorful character and a, and a great lawyer, but uh, he introduced me to a phrase as a young lawyer that I thought was pretty powerful, back the dump truck up. Um, and so that got me to doing a lot of research. And we looked at about, I don't know, almost 400 jury verdicts, basically the whole scope of jury verdicts uh, in patent cases. And we found that willfulness was actually a big, big part of skewing a jury toward finding infringement. So, you know, it looks like if you can win on willfulness, you had about a 20 point chance better of winning on your, your base infringement case. And that makes sense because the, the jury would probably rather find who they want to like and who they want to hate versus dig deep into the technology. So I don't, I don't know. What do you, what do you say to, to Georgia's strategy there? Well, the, the I, I was fortunate to get to try a patent case and, and Tyler with George as well. And, you know, the dump truck works a lot better when George is driving it. I'll say that. Um, uh, no, George is a, is a great trial lawyer. His son, Reich, and I graduated from law school together, so I've been around his family for a long time, and that's absolutely correct. It does help your case, but that, those are very interesting facts because they, they remind you that while I'm over here saying, well, you don't have to worry about willful because it doesn't affect uh, enhanced damages as much as you might think, it just having willful in front of the jury is kind of threatening the flanks of your infringement defense. So you have to fight it affirmatively at the infringement stage. It also explains why we see plaintiffs bringing up some kind of willfulness case towards the end of a case in order to get those arguments in front of the jury, because I've seen them be very, very effective. Uh, if you portray to a jury, these are the people that you can trust and these are the people that you can't, uh, you've definitely got a leg up. So that's very interesting information about, about what a willfulness uh, uh, argument at trial does even if you don't get a finding on it. And I, and I guess in this Apple case, the, the plaintiffs got a $300 million verdict. So um, they probably didn't go home sad. Well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think they're probably still pretty happy about it. Um, another interesting case we got uh, this week uh, out of the Eastern District. And 
and it's out of Beaumont with one of our newer judges, Michael Trincali, and Judge Trincali granted a default judgment, including an injunction in a trademark case. Now, normally, I don't really pay much attention to um, uh, uh, cases or, or decisions where there wasn't somebody on the other side opposing it, but it's a really, really good analysis for damages. The plaintiff came in and said, hey, we've got a default judgment. We want $100,000. And Judge Trincali said, well, let me go through the standards. Let me go through the recoveries. Let me go through how all this is calculated and awarded only $5,000 in statutory damages based on the facts of the case. So it's a useful opinion for kind of, uh, it's kind of a, a primer for how damages work in uh, uh, non-patent cases that I think was kind of useful. This, this case actually surprised me when I read through it. You've got a willful counterfeiter. I mean, the judge found willfulness, you identified them as a counterfeiter. They wouldn't show up to court. And then the judge really gave the lowest, you know, at the very, very low end of statutory damages. Uh, you know, my, my concern here is that one of the purposes of the Lanham Act and statutory awards is deterrence. Do you think a $5,000 award makes any type of deterrence in a trademark case? Well, I, I think it's important to read what the judge said about who the defendant was. The defendant was a small shop and uh, had a limited, he was trying to find a way to punish them sufficiently without putting them out of business. So if I'm reading this as someone who's, who's got a more successful business or a business that does more, I think I would, I would pay attention to how calibrated it was to the size of the defendant. You're right. It, if he'd done more than that, it would have put him out of business. It would have been uh, uh, an absolute death penalty. And I think what he was trying to say is, yes, it's willful, but that doesn't mean a death penalty, which is what a substantial sanction would have been. Because between uh, 10,000 in fees and 5,000 in damages, that's enough that you're really punishing this particular individual, but without putting them out of business. So it would be interesting to see whether another court would approach it that way. But I, but I would pay attention to the size of the defendant, uh, the way I think the court did here. Well, do you think it's important that the court put the injunction in so it has the, a big hammer if the defendant tries this again? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and the impression I got was that this isn't the only thing that this company does. And the injunction didn't put them out of business. It simply took care of preventing them from engaging this same conduct. And I think will help because the, the plaintiff was a repeat enforcer of its intellectual property. And I think the plaintiff can go around and point to, here's a roadmap to what needs to happen in other courts. It just needs to be calibrated to the size of the defendant. Good. It's, I mean, it, it is interesting that it, it really does come down to, to fairness in evaluating that in a 5,000 award I may mean, doesn't seem huge in terms of a lot of the patent verdicts, but it is for a mom and pop shop. It's always irritating when there's nobody on the other side and you still can't convince the judge to, to, to do what you want. But, but I, I remind people, you know, this isn't just a, a, a um, adversarial, it is an adversarial process for us, for the court. They're trying to get to the fair result, the right result in the middle, and the fact that you've got the greatest lawyer in the world on your side and the other side has someone who's never been uh, in a civil case before, you may think that means that you run the table, but courts tend to pay a little more attention to uh, 
some of the facts than you would like them to sometimes. Well, what else do we have? We had a verdict in a product liability case in Sherman. And what's unusual about that is Sherman is generally not a place where you see plaintiffs have a lot of success with personal injury cases. Here, a plaintiff suffered third degree burns after falling on a space heater and the judge awarded a little over a million dollars. Well, that's a lot of money for a Sherman jury. So that may be um, uh, something interesting to uh, look at in the future because typically I tell people Sherman juries are great in commercial cases because they can write big numbers. They're used to big numbers. They have business expertise. I would not have expected this uh, in a personal injury case. So that's a little unusual. Um, there was another interesting case out of Marshall this week. We talked a little earlier about what you do when you can't get a ruling on a venue motion out of a court. Uh, and in this case, what the defendant finally did was file a mandamus after asking uh, for a ruling, asking uh, to stay uh, an upcoming uh, Markman hearing. They filed a, a, a petition for writ of mandamus and a week later, the court got out a ruling denying the motion to transfer and providing all the reasons why the case needed to go forward in Marshall as opposed to Dallas. It also put in a footnote that I thought was interesting where it points out that something that's impacted my ability to address this motion earlier is that since March 1 of this year, I've tried nine jury trials to verdict as a part of addressing the backlog caused by the pandemic. So I'm a little behind on my motions, but here's your ruling on the venue. Uh, and then and then the case uh, next goes into the Markman stage. So I guess we'll see if the party uh, asks the federal circuit to take uh, action in light of the fact that they have a ruling there. Well, Michael, what struck me about this particular decision and the briefing behind it was just the, the lack of facts that the defendant put in. And, and the court really had an easy decision here, it looked like, in going through and saying that, Defendant, you didn't present facts on these three factors, so they go against you. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's what's happening. These these are pretty what mature I, motion practice now. People, well, know. what I think what I think is happening there is that you had a pretty sexy fact of that the plaintiff filed suit in Marshall and immediately after that filed suit in Dallas. So uh, there was a, a strong argument in the briefing that there's form shopping going on here that they're waiting to see which judges they draw and then they're going forward based on that. And they're trying to see if the court is receptive to that fact. We just got through talking about how a jury might be receptive to willful infringement facts. And instead of focusing on infringement, they might get sidetracked by looking at some uh, uh, willful uh, activity. So I think what, is, what was happening here is the party was trying to see is the court gonna view what's going on here as an improper conduct and in his discretion decide, no, you don't get to pick which court you're gonna be in front of. You're gonna go to, I'm, I'm gonna send you to Dallas because I don't like the way you have done this. Um, the court clearly skipped over that, didn't, uh, there's some interesting language in there where the court says, this is a hard fought case. Both sides are throwing a few elbows uh, basically, but both sides are within the bounds of what's legal. So I'm going to go look at the factors. And when I look at the factors, Dallas isn't clearly more convenient. There was also an interesting fact here. In one of the unpublished Federal Circuit opinions, uh, I think it was last year, the court denied a mandamus directed at Judge Gilstrap. And they pointed out that we've never granted 
mandamus in the venue context where the defendant's headquarters wasn't in the proposed transferee forum, and we're not going to start now. Well, interestingly, in this case, the defendant was headquartered in the Eastern District, closer to Dallas than to Marshall, but still within the Eastern District. So while that point didn't come up in the briefing, it didn't come up in the court's opinion, um, that's something I remember seeing at least one panel talk about at the federal circuit. So there, there is that, there were local connections uh, joining the case to the Eastern District that you don't always see. So it, it was a case where there were some facts that usually uh, the uh, defendant has got to play with. And in this case, the plaintiff had. So the, the takeaway is, even if you think you've got that uh, emotional tug, you, you need to go ahead and do all your, your blocking and tackling. Get those. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think so. You may get lucky and the court will get, I won't say sidetracked, but the court will get very interested in those, those facts. But you need to cover yourself on, on everything else. Uh, because uh, there's another case I'll talk about later today where there was a pretty sexy fact that a party was trying to get the court to focus on and the court was like, no, I'm looking at what the facts are that are relevant and you didn't give me enough facts to decide this. We had another uh, venue decision out of Marshall. Uh, it was an improper venue situation where the plaintiff filed suit in Marshall and Judge Gilstrap granted the motion to transfer based on improper venue and didn't even allow venue discovery. And he points out, it's the plaintiff's burden to show that venue is proper under section 1400B. You have to come forward with some factual contentions showing a regular established place of business, uh, an agency relationship. You've got to give me something. In this case, they gave him nothing. And he said, there, there's, there's not even any reason to believe that, that venue discovery would do any good. So he transferred the case uh, based on improper venue. So again, you have a situation where a, where a party is not providing the court with the facts that they need to in order to prevail against a motion. Good lesson for for attorneys, senior and junior. That 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 decision really lays it out pretty clearly on how how facts should be detailed and backed up. Right, right. You're you're putting motions in front of judges. To see these motions literally every day. And they know, they overlay their knowledge on what you've put in front of them. And the, the, the holes in your proof may not be immediately obvious to you. But, but I mean, I know from having been a law clerk late in the last century, uh, it's very obvious very quickly to the court where the holes in your proof are on something that they say, see this often. Well, Michael, you also um, identified a, a motion in Lemonade that's pretty instructive. You want to walk us through what, what you found there? Yeah, we, we got a motion in limine this week in a case, or last week in a case, and it was very helpful because it provides some guidance to the parties that follows up on something that a court said. I mean, I know from being at the hearing, the court said all this at the hearing, but helpfully, it's in the order here. Um, he talks about the scope of expert testimony. We're all used to, to being told it's got to be in the report. Expert can't talk about something that's not in his report. But the court notes here, by the way, uh, you've got some pretty voluminous appendixes here, but they're not discussed or analyzed in the body of the report. So I just want to give you a heads up. You're not going to be able to testify about the appendix beyond what is in the report. So if I have an appendix that has all this information and my expert just talks about one or two things in it, she's not going to be able to come in and talk about other things in the appendix. 
So that, that's a useful uh, warning to the parties just to make sure that, that everybody understands what you can and can't talk uh, about. There's also discussion in that order where the court slices and dices the expert testimony and says, okay, this expert, this one's good to go. This one is good on this opinion, but not this opinion. And lets you know what you have in the report is sufficient to allow the expert to testify on some subjects, but not on others. It's always helpful to me when you've got a report where, where the, the court is basically straddling the target. Here, this is enough. Here, this is not enough so that you can tell from the same judge applying the same standards whether something is in and out. Um, it, it, one, another interesting thing that came up in that case is that the parties uh, could not reach agreement on whether they were going to disparage or bolster uh, the PTO. So the court explained, well, I'll answer this for you. You're not going to do either. And now we've got an order that says that. It's even on the same page of the order. So we're not going to have to argue about that in the future because occasionally everybody knows you can't disparage the PTO, but sometimes it's not clear where the line is on what you can and can't do is. So we've got an order on that. And then- Michael, the before, part, oh, before go you go on there, I'd be curious to know- I mean, what do we know about that line? What is improper disparagement versus what is improper bolstering? How far can you go? Well, I, th I think everybody knows, in most cases I've been involved in, the court plays the video about how the patent office works. So the, the jury has, has an understanding of the process. You can't um, try to gold plate the process by talking about all the time that it's spent in, in re-exam and all the expertise and everything like that. You also can't say they're overworked, they make all kinds of mistakes or things like that. It's just a subject that the court kind of shoes people away from beyond what's in uh, the video uh, because the jury does have a role to play here. And, and I saw, I've seen in, in um, focus groups, sometimes jurors don't even want to get involved in that process. They want to defer to the PTO. Well, that's not what the law is. Some, uh, on the other hand, jurors may decide they don't trust the government at all, so they're not going to give any deference to, to the finding, and that's not correct either. So I think what the court is trying to do is just say what they're given in the court's instructions and in the um, video is really all the jury needs to know. After that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here's your role, here's the standards, and here's the decision you have to make, and don't worry about what happened or it didn't happen somewhere else. The, the last thing that was useful about this order is that the parties, I think this is kind of helpful. In all cases, we have agreed motions in limine. And typically you just tell the court, well, two, four, six, and nine are agreed. What the parties did here was they kept, whenever something would be agreed, they'd pull it out, put it in an agreed motion and number it differently. And they did it three times. So you had, I think, 36 items that were agreed. They're separately numbered. So you can look at that section of the order and see all the sorts of things that in that case, the parties agreed on. My favorite in there is that nobody's going to refer to the Illuminati. You don't see that in every case. But There's got to be a backstory there. Yeah. Yeah. There is a backstory there. And I'll tell you about it after the trial. My, um, I, I'm going to tell you my, my favorite one. Uh, first partner I worked for the uh, other side filed a, uh, I guess they tried a lot of cases against him. They uh, filed uh, the motion in Lemonade to prevent him from referring to Iowa, 
growing up in Iowa, growing up farming, or any university in Iowa. So, <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen I've seen some like that uh, as well. It's sometimes you can uh, you can go a little too far. Uh, we talked about other other instances where somebody doesn't do what they need to do. Uh, we got an interesting opinion last week from Magistrate Judge Payne and Marshall. He denied a party's request for a continuance due to witness unavailability. The witness said, hey, Judge, we need a 14-day continuance. One of our expert witnesses is set for trial with Judge Albright and wake up. And Judge Payne looks at the facts and says, wait a minute. We've been set for trial for a year. The Waco trial didn't get the trial setting until six months ago, and it looks like nobody tried to protect the expert schedule. So his first obligation is to be here. Nobody protected uh, him from being rescheduled, and I can't move cases around just because people decide that they're going to agree to be someplace else on a date we already had a trial setting. So um, he, he, at the end, the court says, if the witness doesn't honor his prior commitment, meaning to testify in Marshall, he may appear by deposition. What I'm not clear about is, is the court saying you can play his deposition? And of course, the party putting him on probably didn't ask any questions. Or was it indicating, come back and ask for a trial deposition and we'll do another uh, trial deposition. You can just play that at trial. I have not seen any orders come out uh, further on that. And the other thing that may have happened is the Waco case may have settled, so it may not matter. Well, that's, I mean, if it's just deposition, normal deposition, of course, the party putting on that witness asks zero questions. Exactly. Exactly. So if the court just says you're past the, the deadline and if you didn't take his deposition, his deposition probably occurred after he uh, you decided to ignore the trial setting. And, and again, this is not the same party in Waco, but they didn't protect his conflict when they did it. So the party in Marshall is, is in a little bit of a, a tough spot here, but really the expert is the one who should have said, I've got this conflict and, and flagged it for people. So anyway, this is just another thing that you have to worry about uh, with, um, or we have to worry about until courts stop rescheduling cases due to the pandemic, I guess. Uh, we also got a 101 ruling in Marshall last week that was kind of interesting. The court agreed that the claims were directed to an abstract idea, but he found that there were factual disputes as to whether the claims were patentable. So the motion was denied on that basis. So I don't see a lot where, where the, the motion gets that far. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So, Michael, I'm beginning to read more and more about 101 issues going to the to the jury because they're factual disputes. And I got to tell you, the first time I ever raised one of those, uh, the judge told me I was an idiot, that no jury should ever see a 101 issue. Um, so uh, if the judge is listening, he knows who he is. But uh, <laughs> now these are going going to the jury. What, what do you see happening here in terms of trial strategy? Uh, it gives you an opportunity as a defendant to get a factual question because the jury isn't being asked, are the patents invalid because of this? It's being asked a slightly different question. So it, it seems to be something that actually gives you, a, 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 it's not a bad thing to have. I mean, it would be better if you could get, get a summary judgment granted on it, but it's not a bad thing to be able to submit at trial as a, as a backup. And we've had several cases like that in the Eastern District, and, and defendants have been 
uh, pretty successful with the argument at that point. Well, one of the, the things I keep reading about is that, again, back to that skunk in the jury box um, theory from Judge Davis, that juries have a hard time separating out state of the art from true prior art. 101 starts looking like 102 and 103, and it makes it really tough for a jury to, to apply the right evidence to the right, the right decision. No, I, th I think so. It, it is confusing. I think it's confusing to the jury. It's 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 potentially very dangerous for the plaintiff uh, because you've got to make sure the jury stays straight on all this stuff. And it's just one more one more cat that you've got to chase in front of the jury that you cannot afford to let get away from you. Well, so we had a, a big, big week in the, in the eastern district. Uh, what happened in the western? We had a lot of interesting uh, stuff come out of the Western District uh, this week. The uh, the first Intel trial in Waco, the one that resulted in the two billion verdict, uh, Judge Albright denied the motion for new trial in that case. Said that the evidence concerning uh, Intel's intellectual property settlement agreement practices and the damages uh, that the plaintiff was putting on were properly admitted. So that case is getting uh, um, uh, set up for appeal there. We also had another reminder of what life was like last Waco, last Waco, last spring, because Judge Albright has transferred another case from Austin to Waco for trial. Now, this is the Fintiv case that was getting close to trial before it was um, uh, essentially the case was dismissed because he had made some dispositive rulings. It went up to the federal circuit, came back. Well, it was originally filed in Waco. For the convenience of the parties, uh, Judge Albright transferred the case to Austin down the road about, a, about an hour and a half. But now, because the Austin courthouse is not open for trials, he's doing like he did in that Intel trial a year ago and transferring it back up to Waco, because unless he does that, he can't try it on schedule next month. So that's, uh, that's another instance where uh, we've seen that happen before. We've seen the, the federal circuit uh, affirm that decision. It'll be interesting to see if it goes up again and if the federal circuit's decision is different this time. The other uh, interesting opinion from Judge Albright uh, last week was a Markman ruling uh, where he found uh, two of the terms plain and ordinary and the other 15 invalid for, for not having corresponding structure. So the uh, claims got invalidated uh, because of a 1012.6 issue. Um, that's not exactly uh, what you normally see, I had actually two Markman uh, uh, hearings in front of Judge Albright yesterday, and and our what we had was a little different there. In in this particular, I guess this particular uh, approach that he used, um, how do people want to think about it going after one twelve six or or one twelve F in the future? Well, I think what it what it tells us is you can be lulled into a false sense of security by seeing opinions that come out that are always plain and ordinary meaning. Uh, my two my two cases yesterday combined it was fourteen terms. All fourteen terms the the court said plain and ordinary meaning, and there were a couple of terms where he provided some additional guidance. But you need to know that that's a real. Uh, 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 obstacle that you've got to get over at that stage, you will see claims get invalidated and you need to pay attention to that. Uh, th this 
order was simply memorializing what the court's rulings were at the hearing. It doesn't have the, the rationale or the reasoning that'll come in a later order. So hopefully we'll get an order that kind of explains what he's saying that is missing there. But it, but it clearly means you've got to talk about the corresponding structure uh, because he is, he is attentive to that. Well, Michael, there was a, another one more of the more unusual motions I've seen. It was a, the request to bar uh, participation in, in declaratory judgment actions in the Northern District of California, which I read as a, as a, asking Judge Albright to order the, the plaintiff to ignore the federal judges in the Northern District of California. Yeah, yeah, I thought this was just goofy. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a it was a polite opinion for a pretty bizarre request. Um, he's the first to file court. The second file court can stay its action, but the first file court doesn't stay the second file court. He doesn't write one of the judges in California and say, okay, don't go forward on this. So it's kind of a goofy thing to ask for, but, but maybe it will help remind some people. And they had a reason. They had a reason why, why they thought uh, that, that this would make sense, but it wasn't a very good one. So no, that's not a strategy I would recommend. Okay. I've there heard was. several several judges address things like this before when they're like, the, the statement is, I'm not going to order another federal judge to take a course of action, even if I could. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so it was it was, uh, as I said, it was a politer opinion than it could have been because it was just completely outside the bounds of what you could expect a judge to do. And the authority they gave him was clearly not on, on point. And anytime you're referring to a 30-year-old district court case, and that's the best you can come up with, that's probably not a good argument. We got another uh, order from uh, Judge Albright last week that denied a motion to dismiss on multiple grounds. And the only thing I wanted to point out here is a few weeks ago, I talked about how he lets plaintiffs take discovery on willful infringement, although he strikes the claim. He says, take discovery on it, and then you can come in later and decide whether you want to amend to add it. What he did here was do the same thing for all of the plaintiff's claims for uh, uh, patent infringement. Uh, he said um, he, he granted the motion as to induce contributory and willful infringement, but he let the plaintiffs do discovery related to those claims once discovery opens. I, I misspoke. He didn't grant it as to direct. He granted it as to indirect, but pointed out, but you still get to do discovery and then decide if you want to plead it later. So that's something you need to know. And we've talked about uh, previously. You, you talked about uh, telling uh, one judge, telling another judge what to do. We had an interesting little dance that was going on last week where Judge Albright had sent a letter request to a Swedish judge asking for discovery. And the Swedish judge politely wrote back and said, I, I don't really think this is uh, an appropriate request. And Judge Albright wrote back a polite response that says, okay, we're dropping 12 out of 14 categories. Here are the reasons why we believe the remaining information is discoverable and should be produced. So it's kind of interesting. You don't often get to see judges filing uh, motions to compel what we the language is that of a motion to compel but it's coming from a American judge going to a Swedish judge uh, trying to persuade the Swedish judge that the request for assistance is appropriate well it, it was a little surprising to me that there were 14 requests 
in that original request. Um, that's that's a huge number going to to most foreign jurisdictions that despise U.S. discovery processes. Well, and and that's probably a lesson for all of us is don't ask for everything if you're going to be doing doing that in a letter request because I'm just speculating here, but I imagine Judge Albright didn't really enjoy having to go back and have a do-over where he's got to write this to a Swedish judge and drop all this stuff. I mean, it, it reminds me of when I first started practicing in state court and I was told as a plaintiff that the judge is likely to sign the order that you give her, but you better be right. You better not ask for more than you're entitled to. You better not get her reversed. So in this case, if you're going to ask Judge Albright to sign off on a discovery request, don't ask for the moon and then and then potentially be embarrassed in front of the judge that you asked him to request something that you then couldn't support. So, Michael, last time I did one of these was with Canada and the, the federal judge out here asked, um, did you consult with local counsel about this and do they think it's appropriate? Well, and, and that, that would be a great thing to do. And that was an interesting thing in this order is one of the things that Judge Albright pointed out is that the party had changed their Swedish local council. <laughs> have yeah. no idea if that had anything to do with anything, but, but, but no, absolutely. I mean, talk to someone that's used to what you can and can't get out of this particular court uh, before you haul off and ask for everything. Uh, don't send an American-style set of discovery requests to a to a, a judge in a foreign jurisdiction and then get this kind of blowback. Well, you want to take any bets on whether Judge Albright sends another uh, 14 request document to a foreign judge? <laughs> I, I think that I think probably this is going to alert uh, practitioners that they need to be a little more careful and in what they ask for. And they may very well uh, get the motion, the request for judicial assistance denied by Judge Albright until they go back and they get it narrowed down some. So it, I have not seen this particular situation come up before. So I'm curious to see how that affects people's practice. With the one other really interesting case was the request to bifurcate the inequitable conduct defense, which is almost a, a knee-jerk reaction in a lot of patent cases in a lot of jurisdictions. Well, and, and I, I never have to ask for that because the I know the court's always going to try that separately outside the presence of the jury later. This is a Judge Yackel case, and it's a little unclear to me whether the jury is going to be deciding inequitable conduct or whether he's simply saying that you can put those facts in front of the jury uh, because they overlap with another argument. I mean, you and I have had a trial where we saw the other side start talking about inequitable conduct in front of the jury when they weren't supposed to. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this might be a situation where the evidence is so close that the court's not going to split it out and say, you can't talk about what the inventor didn't say to the patent office because it's kind of an artificial distinction under these facts. I don't know whether he actually plans on submitting inequitable conduct to that jury. I've already had one judge this year, uh, well, same judge two times, submit things to juries for uh, an advisory verdict. So perhaps that's what's going on here. I, I, we just don't know at this point. Well, that'll be interesting because that would be another one of those skunk in the jury box moments that the inequitable conduct could overwhelm the, you know, the, the basic patent principles of infringement and invalidity. 
Oh, it absolutely could. You could have the jury saying, well, this guy lied to the patent office. So, or I mean, it, it could go bad a lot of ways once that gets in front of the jury. So that's not something that, uh, that, that I would want there. Uh, we can only hope that the plaintiff knows to object to having uh, portions of the patent color coded, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the last case I wanted to talk about was a really interesting one out of Austin where the plaintiff's lawyer actually married one of the plaintiffs uh, while the case was going on. And then you got a disqualification motion. And the disqualification motion was saying, okay, the lawyer was outside counsel. It was fine for her to look at the documents then, but once she became inside counsel, in-house counsel, she couldn't look at the documents then. She didn't just marry one of the plaintiffs. She became their in-house counsel uh, working on the case. And what the court said here, uh, you apparently had a pretty fulsome declaration from the lawyer saying, whoa, 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 as soon as I did this, I segregated everything, I set it aside, I tried to get the court to de-designate it, and the court didn't, so I never accessed that, I destroyed it when I was supposed to, I never did what you're assuming I did. And what the defendant was doing is saying, come on, come on, she's, she's married to this guy, they've had a child together, surely there's pillow talk going on. Uh, but that's all they had was speculation. And the court zeroed in on, you've got to do more than speculate that she shared it. I've got an affidavit here saying what she did and what she didn't do. And you're just speculating here. And that's not enough to get over the line here. So, so again, what I would have done, I was talking with a, another lawyer at my firm, what I would have done here is not tried to, to, to uh, mudsling on a lawyer. I would have said, there's an inevitable disclosure here, judge. Um, this lawyer has now got an in-house role, but she already has all this information. She can't cabin that off. Let's assume she's going to do everything correctly. Of course, we would not assume she would do anything incorrectly. It's just too much of a risk. That isn't the argument that they made. And maybe that argument would have prevailed. Slinging mud didn't. Well, this is another one of those, those cases for this week that there were juicy facts that people latched onto, or maybe potentially juicy facts, or at least a good story that people latched onto without any real facts to back it up. And it was once again, a loser. Well, yeah. And asking the court to let you send discovery requests, asking the lawyer on the other side, when they became, began intimate relations with uh, their spouse before they were married. Um, I don't think that went over real well. Um, bad, bad judgment on sending that one in. Yeah. So well, Michael, once again, thank you. Uh, it was a good week. I appreciate you sharing with us. All right. Well, I enjoyed it, Wayne. Talk to you next week. Take care.